Well, we're in our sermon series um, in the book of Acts, walking through and studying this book probably for another year or so together as we see the early church that was on mission. The book of Acts, I'll remind you, is all about how Christianity grew from a small group of discouraged Jews to this dynamic worldwide movement that would embrace all ethnic groups and and all social classes. It's really an amazing book of the Bible. It's exciting to me as a pastor because it shows me the potential of a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and a church that stays on mission. Last week, we, we studied the first ingredient that God used to produce this worldwide movement, and that was the coming of the Holy Spirit. We learned the Spirit's not just a force. The Spirit's a person. The Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. It's God in us. The Spirit came upon these 120 believers in Jerusalem. They heard a sound like wind. They saw uh, light or sight like fire, and, and then they miraculously began to speak in at least 15 different languages. These were dialects. This was not some angelic heavenly language that nobody around them could understand. The Spirit gave these Galileans the the power to speak these languages, to declare the mighty works of God in these known languages so that these people could hear the gospel in their heart language, their native tongue. Without the Holy Spirit doing that, the gospel would have been centralized right there in Jerusalem. Well, today's message is going to show us the second ingredient that God used and still uses to propel Christianity and the gospel around the world. By way of introduction, I want you to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Look at your Bible. You can use your phone, your your device, whatever you'd like to follow along in Scripture today. Verse number 12. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Verse 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Look up here for a second. When those in the crowd saw the wonderful works of God declared in their own language by these people they knew hadn't studied their language, there was various responses. Some were amazed, some doubted, some were curious, some even mocked and made fun to the point where they they said, these people are drunk. So in this crowd were seekers. In this crowd were skeptics. In this crowd were mockers. Now I want you to look all the way to the end of our text. To Acts 2 verse 41. Look down at verse 41. Then they, who's they? This is the crowd. They that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, this is amazing. 3,000 people from this same crowd got saved and baptized. You know, my question is, what happened between verses 12 and 13, where this crowd is doubting and mocking, and verse 41, where most of the crowd is repenting and getting baptized? What happened between those two points? It's the same day, the same moment, the same location. Well, here's what happened. The apostle Peter stood up and preached the word of God. Verses 14 through verses 32 record Peter's first sermon. And that's the second ingredient God used and is still using to reach the world with the gospel. He uses spirit filled 
preaching. That's what our sermon's about today. It's about the spirit-filled preaching of the word and what happens as a result. See, we at Fellowship Baptist Church believe that the preaching of the word of God still changes lives. We believe that there's still power in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need any more sermons built around great storytelling and illustrations, though those can be helpful. It's not wrong to have a good sense of humor. It's just that the church isn't meant to be a comedy club. We don't need any more personal opinions. You certainly don't need mine. Instead, you know what we need? We need to hear the word of God explained and preached in all its clarity and in all its power. Whether you know it or not, that's what you need today. Which begs the question. If the word of God preached in the power of the spirit of God is what transformed a Jerusalem crowd from mockers, skeptics, and seekers into a crowd of converts, literally thousands of them. What did that message contain? What was it that Peter preached on this day that we need to continue to preach in our day? Well, in short, it was a biblically saturated, spirit-filled sermon on salvation. When Peter got up to preach... He knew that he did not have the power in and of himself to change anybody's life. So he focused on the scripture. And he preached this convicting message of the gospel. And he devoted this sermon to proving that Jesus is the divine Messiah and that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. As we study this sermon for the next few minutes, there's a twofold purpose. First. There may be some in here today, and this is a good-sized crowd today. So there may be some who, like this Jerusalem crowd, have your doubts about Jesus Christ. Maybe even you've mocked the idea of Christianity being real. If that's you, I want you to listen closely, and I want you to listen with an open mind, because this message could change your life. Second, there are some who have already become Christians, your believers. The purpose of this message for you is to bolster your confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ and to increase your passion to share him around the world with other people. So let's begin in verses 14 through 15 of chapter 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, And all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Before I go on, let me tell you how Peter started his sermon. He's saying, let me get the record straight. It's nine o'clock in the morning and nobody's drunk. What an introduction to a sermon. Put up the beer. It's nine o'clock in the morning said, let me tell you what's really going on. And to tell them what's really going on, he went to a prophecy in the book of Joel. In fact, three different times in his sermon, he went to the Old Testament scripture, which he knew his crowd would be familiar with. So let's start with this prophecy from Joel, which makes up the first point of his sermon, verse 16 through 21. He said, here's what's going on. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. 
I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's the first point of his message. We're living in the last days and we need salvation. Peter tells the audience that they're witnessing Firsthand, what the prophet Joel prophesied would happen in the last days. Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 is where Joel foretold this, this mighty downpour of the Spirit on the Israelites and how, how blessings would flow out of them to people of every nation and tribe. And it did. Peter talks about the Spirit of God coming upon all genders. You saw that. All ages. All demographics in the day of Pentecost. They were all prophesying about the wonderful works of God, the spirit of God. Watch here. He was allowing the gospel to extend just beyond the Israelites into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, it's important to understand that the last days that Joel prophesied about was beginning right here in Acts chapter eight. I'm Acts chapter two. We tend to think of the last days as some future apocalyptic time, Right. But what Peter is saying is that the last days have already begun with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, there will certainly be a a, a future last day of judgment. That's when Christ will return and there'll be judgment upon the earth. But Peter's right. The last days have already begun. And this is a great introduction to Peter's sermon because it gives urgency to his message. The people of Jerusalem must listen to his words because they were living in the last days. And the same is true for us. People should be listening to the message of salvation because we too are living in the last days. How many believe Jesus could come back at any moment? And one day, each one of us will stand before God and face his judgment upon our sins. That is... Unless we have a way out. Unless we can be delivered from that. Unless we can be saved from that judgment. And thank God there is salvation. That's Peter's point in talking about the last day. He's not this traveling prophecy speaker collecting love offerings and scaring little kids in church. He's pointing them to their urgent need for salvation. He said in verse 21, here's the point of me talking about the last days, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, between the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came inaugurating the last days, and now the day of the Lord, when Jesus will come and conclude the last days, there stretches a long day of opportunity during which the, the gospel of salvation will be preached throughout the world. We're in that day of opportunity right now. Are you with me? And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord during this time of opportunity will be saved. It's not that God isn't wanting to save people. He is in the posture of saying, call upon the name of my son, Jesus. Trust in him alone. 
Whoever you are. In Peter's day, it can be a slave. It can be a young man and an old man. A young lady, an old lady. The Spirit will come into anybody who trusts in Jesus as their Savior and repents of their sin. Whoever will call upon me, I want to save. So that's what Peter starts with. Jesus could come back, and when he does, he's initiating judgment. And if you want to be saved from that, you can be. So how? Well, you've got to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? That's what Peter presses into with the rest of his sermon. Um, here's the second point. Salvation only comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Does everybody agree with that? Verse 22. Study with me. Verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Notice the phrase, Jesus of Nazareth. These words would have fallen like a bombshell on the crowd that day. Oh, they heard the stories. They heard the rumors. They heard the water cooler gossip over the past seven weeks since Jesus was crucified. But no one would dare to speak that name openly and without fear until this time. This is the content of Peter's message. It's all about Jesus. He's saying we need salvation and that salvation is only found through Jesus of Nazareth. And then Peter starts speaking of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection... And his exaltation. He starts with his life. He said that Jesus was, quote, approved by God. What does that mean? Jesus was approved by God. It means that he was endorsed by God. It means that he was accredited by the Father. Fellowship Baptist Academy, our academy here in our church, is in the process of becoming an accredited school. That that means a relevant board or or institution will examine our school for the next several years. They'll examine our teachers, our students, our our curriculum, our grading system, and some other things. And hopefully, I believe they will, end up deciding, we approve you. We endorse you. You're legitimate in our eyes. That's what God did for Jesus. He approved Jesus of Nazareth as being legitimately the Son of God. And verse 22 tells us, That he did it by the supernatural acts that Jesus performed throughout his ministry before many witnesses on earth. It was no secret. Jesus fed thousands. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus gave sight to the blind. Jesus healed the lame. He healed the lepers. He raised the dead. Peter called these supernatural acts miracles, wonders, and signs in verse 22. Miracles show that these things were a demonstration of the power of God. Signs meant their purpose was to signify spiritual truth. Wonders means their effect was to astonish and amaze all who saw them. These actions of Jesus in his life demonstrated, church, that he was not just a man. He was the Son of God, endorsed by his Father. But Peter didn't stop there. He makes the case that Jesus is even more than just a man sent from God. More than a great prophet. More than a great miracle worker. Death and resurrection. Verse 23. Him, speaking of Jesus. Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified 
and slain. Man, Peter's got some boldness going on. He tells us that Jesus was crucified by wicked hands. And how many remember why Jesus was crucified? You remember the reason? It's because of who he claimed to be. Jesus died on the cross because he was accused of blasphemy. In their their day, that meant falsely claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. But here's the good news. He didn't stay dead. Look at verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now watch how the death and resurrection work together to make Peter's point. The Jews were accusing Jesus of claiming to be God when they didn't think he was. So they put him on a cross. Then they put him in a grave. But when Jesus rose from the dead, God overruled the verdict of the human court. The Sanhedrin declared him guilty of blasphemy. Pontius Pilate ordered his execution, but God declared him not guilty. In the resurrection of Christ, God was demonstrating that Jesus was telling the truth about his identity. He is the Messiah. He is God's divine son. Hear me today. Mere men don't conquer the grave. Earthly kings don't conquer the grave. Presidents and rulers of this earth don't conquer the grave. Old Testament prophets don't conquer the grave. The son of God conquers the grave. And he did. He did. Peter presses into this even further. He wants to use the Old Testament scripture to prove that he wasn't just making this up. So he pulls from Psalm chapter 16 where David wrote about God not allowing his holy one to see corruption or to remain in death. Would you follow along as I read verse 25 through 32? For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, this is how, this is how Peter's going to interpret David's words. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. I know that's a lot, but can I sum it up for you? Peter argues That David spoke as a prophet of his future descendant, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. David prophesied that the grave would not be able to hold Jesus. And David was right. The grave couldn't hold Jesus because Jesus was who David said he was. And the resurrection of his body from the dead Proves that he's more than a man, more than a prophet, more than a healer. He's the messianic son of David who rose from the grave and can bring salvation to the world. But the message of Jesus' person and work for our salvation still isn't over. According to Peter, we need to talk about his ascension. His exaltation to the throne of God. Because that proves... That he is not just Messiah, not just the son of David, 
not just the Son of God. He is Lord. Verse 33-36. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, he quotes David again, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Look up here for a second. If the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is Messiah, the ascension, the exaltation proves he's Lord. For him to be Lord means that Jesus is the ultimate authority who we'll all answer to one day. His location at the right hand of the Father demonstrates that power. power. And, and so Peter goes to the Old Testament To Psalms 110 verse 1, where he quotes David saying, the Lord said unto my Lord. What's that all about? What's he saying that for? The Lord said unto my Lord. Well, there are two different Hebrew words. One is Yahweh, one is Adonai. Yahweh said to Adonai. God said to God. What did he say? He said, sit on my right hand at the place of my power and authority and glory. So in this conversation in in Psalm 110 that Peter quoted, we have God the Father. Watch this. God the Father. Saying to God the Son, I will exalt you to the position of highest honor. I will exalt you to my right hand. And he did. He did. That's where Jesus resides right now. He resides as King of Kings. He resides as Lord of Lords sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is Peter going to length to talk about Jesus' life? To talk about Jesus' death, to talk about Jesus' resurrection, to talk about Jesus' ascension, to talk about Jesus' exaltation. Why is he going all the way back to the Old Testament to prove that this is true? Verse 36 gives us his thesis statement. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You know what Peter's trying to do? He's trying to say this, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one you crucified, is the divine son of God. The Lord of lords, the king of kings, he is who he says he is. And if you want salvation from the judgment which will happen at the last day, you must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You must believe that Jesus is the son of God. You must believe that Jesus was crucified, but raised from the dead. You must believe that he is now exalted at the right hand of the throne of God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's his purpose. Believe. Believe. The judgment's here. That, that, that's, that's been fulfilled. That The last days are here, rather. The judgment's coming because the Holy Spirit's come upon us. The signs of the times are everywhere. We are living in the last days. We need salvation. We need a Savior. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. His life proves He is the Son of God. His death, His resurrection proves that He's the Son of David, the Messiah. His exaltation proves He is the divine Lord. And so believe in Him. Now, can we all say amen to that sermon? It's powerful. But that's not where the text ends. Because what we see next is that the Holy Spirit used his word 
to convict these individuals, to prick them in their heart, and to bring them to a point of response. Can I say this? That the message of salvation always demands a response. Every time you're confronted with the person and work of Jesus Christ for your sin, it demands that you respond by saying yes or no. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked. Another way of saying this is when they heard the message of salvation, it cut them to the heart. Have you ever been cut to the heart by what somebody said? You knew it was the truth. You knew it applied to you. You knew it cut deep. That's what happens when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and puts it into people's hearts. The Word of God is likened unto a two-edged sword because it pierces Deeply. That's why, listen, when we preach the gospel, we don't have to be desperate to manufacture results. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The message of salvation is powerful enough in and of itself to cut to the heart. We don't have to feel the pressure to make it happen. I don't have to go to bed tonight as the pastor and the one who preached this message of salvation today. If nobody responds to this, I don't have to go to bed discouraged. That's not on me. The Holy Spirit is already right now doing His work in some hearts in this room right now. I know it. Why? Because the Word of God's being preached. And the Word of God is being preached. The Spirit of God takes it and He cuts hearts. And I know that's happening today. It's not my job to convince you. It's my job to tell you the truth. It's your job to respond. The individuals on this day were so cut to the heart that they literally said out loud, what do we need to do? Tell us our next step. And hear me, that's the best question you can ask when the word of God cuts you to the heart. Don't ignore it. Don't argue with it. Don't try to escape it. Simply say this. What am I supposed to do now? And Peter's answer to that question is simple. Repent and be baptized. Look at verses 38 and 39. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. We're hastening to a close, but I want you to hear this. When Peter says to repent, He's telling the people, turn from your sin. It's not enough to hear the message of salvation and be moved by the message of salvation. They said, what do we need to do? In other words, is there any action we need to take? And Peter says, yes. There needs to be a turning from your sin. It's not enough just to declare that Jesus is your king. You must turn away from any other king in your life. You must be willing to take sides with Jesus against the sin in your life that he died to conquer. That doesn't mean you have to be perfectly and completely free of sin. I think I've already sinned today. Won't happen until you get to heaven. Here's what it does mean. Your overall attitude and approach towards sin must change. 
It means that you're willing to dedicate yourself to resisting sin by God's power on every front in your life. It means that instead of cherishing your sin and defending your sin, you're going to hate your sin and you're going to war against your sin. This is how I know that getting saved from the judgment to come is more than just saying a prayer. We've always given an incomplete imitation sometimes when, when we've said, just ask Jesus into your heart. It's more than that. It's more than that. It's a commitment of your life to turn from your old ways of doing what you want to do and saying what you want to say and sinning whenever and however you want to sin. It's committing that with God's help, the sin in your life, the the flesh and the devil won't have their way any longer. That's repentance and that's salvation. And then as a visible demonstration of that repentance and of, of your faith in the person and work of Jesus... Peter says, you get baptized. Now, some have mistaken Peter's words here to mean baptismal regeneration. You have to be baptized in order to be saved and go to heaven. After all, Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of the sin. It appears as though they're both equally as necessary for salvation from your sins. But don't forget verse 41 says that they were baptized after they received the word by faith. But I don't need to go do a bunch of gymnastics to try to try to get out of the fact that Peter put together repentance and baptism. A lot of people go act like they're Greek scholars when they're not. They read a couple books and they'll try to explain, well, that mean that word actually means this and in this order and that just just to rest assured that you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. The Bible speaks loudly of the fact that that going to heaven is by faith in Jesus alone. We never take our our doctrine off one verse anyway, so that doesn't scare me. Here's what Peter does. He intentionally, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts repentance with baptism. Why? Why did he do that if baptism is not necessary to go to heaven? Here's why. Because those who genuinely repent of their sin and believe in the person of Jesus Christ will express that repentance and faith by getting publicly baptized. In other words, Peter just took for granted. You're going to repent? Well, then you'll be baptized. A genuine Christian will want to demonstrate to the world, to their family, to the church, through an outward expression of water baptism, what has happened on the inside of them. Which tells me this. An unwillingness to get baptized might very well be an indicator that genuine repentance and faith has not yet taken place. When I say a, a resistance, I, I'm not saying, hey, I need some time to process that and to learn more. About, I'm not talking about that. We walk people slowly through that decision. I'm talking about a folding of the arms resistance. I will not get baptized. I already got baptized. Nope. Baptism follows salvation as an expression of genuine faith and a commitment to repent of your sins. Now, we're going to dive into baptism more in our next sermon. But you should know. That baptism is an appropriate and expected response to truly receiving the message of salvation. After these individuals believed in Jesus and repented of their sin, then God blessed them with the gift of the Holy Spirit and and gave them forgiveness of their sins. 3,000 people were saved. Can you imagine that? I mean, come on. 
as a preacher, I'm like, God, would you ever do this for me? I mean, I'm throwing a party when one person gets saved. And I'm like, 3,000, that'd be amazing. Well, the point of this isn't to teach us that when we preach salvation, 3,000 people will get saved. That's not the point. We're never promised that. The point of this is preach salvation. And when you preach salvation, you leave the results up to God and the Holy Spirit. And it may be one. It may be 3,000 over the course of a lifetime. But rarely, this was a very special point in history. Here's what we know, church, listen. We carry the same message that Peter preached. We're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? This wasn't like a special, a special version. We don't have Holy Spirit volume two. We got volume one. And we got all of it we're ever going to get if you're saved. That means this. When you're scared of speaking up, the Holy Spirit will help you. Do you remember Peter? He's the dude that was scared to, to claim that he was a Christ follower. He told all those people, denied it three times. You look like a disciple. Nope, not me. I don't even know who Jesus is. He was scared. Then the Holy Spirit got all over him. And now he's bold. Looking at these same people that he was scared of months ago and saying, you're the one that put him on the cross. And by the way, his name's Jesus, the son of David, the son of God. That tells me if the Holy Spirit, if you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you can have more boldness than you ever dreamed you could have. Well, it's just not my personality to speak up. Then start here. Start here. Take one of these on your way out. Did you take one last week? Take one of these. Because on the back is that QR code. They'll, you, don't, you don't have to preach the message of salvation. You might not be ready for that. But you can tell them, go scan that. And then that shows a, a video of me preaching the message of salvation for like five or six minutes. That's it. And it gives them everything they need to know to be saved. Or at least to take the next step towards salvation. So take one of these on your way out and say, Holy Spirit, I'm not even good at like leaving these at my table for my waitress. I don't, I'm not even good at like giving this to my coworker or my mailman or mail lady or my mechanic. I, I just, I don't know, I get nervous about this. Then the Holy Spirit can help you. Holy Spirit can give you what you need to get the message of salvation to your world. But then there may be some. I just talked to Christians. There may be some in here that you're not a Christian. And you've been wrestling with that for a while. Or you've been trusting in something totally different than what I preached about to take you to heaven. Maybe if you're honest, you've been pricked in the heart. You feel it, you sense it, you know it. God is speaking to you today. He's drawing you today. The word of God is cutting you up today. Like, wow, we're in the last days. I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I've placed my faith in Jesus alone. Then my prayer all week long has been this, that you would gladly receive the word. That you would say, that's me. I need Jesus. I want to invite him to my life. Hear me, please. If there's just but one in here that's in that position, you are surrounded by believers that would celebrate with you today if you'd give your life to Christ. That's what this message is really for. It's for the one or two or three 
They came to church today at Fellowship Baptist Church. And you don't know Jesus. Haven't been willing to turn your back on your sin. And make him the king and lord of your life. And I'm going to invite you to do that today. It's amazing. Just this last week we had communion. Wasn't that communion service amazing, church family? Wow. One of the most special services I've ever been a part of. And I've been in this church my whole life. 37 years I've been here. Or am I 38? Am I 38? Okay. I'm 38. For 38 years and nine months, I've been in this church. Got my mom on that side, my wife on this side. And that that was a special service. Sitting by Pastor David in that service was a man by the name of Luis Morales that he's been trying uh, to lead to the Lord for the last couple of months. Luis has been coming and meeting with David. We go through what we call Fellowship 101 where we explain the gospel and affirm people's salvation or, or show people how they can be saved before they become members of the church. And David is meeting with them and just saw how God was working on him. But Luis is an analytical kind of guy and just couldn't wrap his mind around uh, faith and repentance and all of those things. And, and so David said, why don't you come to communion? Just watch, just, just, just spectate. You're going to hear a lot about Jesus, what he did for you. And so, man, I, the deacons, we met at 6 to pray for our communion service. And we prayed for Luis at 6. And the pastoral staff prayed for Luis. And sure enough, he came in and sat by David on Wednesday night for communion. And we just lifted up Jesus. I didn't even preach a sermon. We just sung about Jesus and read scripture about Jesus and prayed to Jesus. And it's amazing. And after the service, Luis said, I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus and repent of my sins. And Luis got saved. Isn't that amazing? That amazing. That wasn't it. We had a, a little girl in our church, uh, Chloe Dewar, uh, who, who's been asking questions for a long time about her salvation. She goes to our academy, and after communion service, she got saved as well. Amazing. Yeah, come on. That's great. And you might be here today, and you might have heard of this story of Jesus. For the first time, or maybe you've heard it for a long time, but I never believed it. And maybe this is your day of salvation. I would say, like Peter said, we're living in the last days. Repent and believe. And Christians, would you come pray today that God would lead you into the path of somebody that needs to be preached to. Not hatefully, lovingly introduced to Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Let's stand to our feet.